Could you please stand as I read the word? It'll be the word that the text of our sermon, and it's the word to you. This is from Psalm 48. It is Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in a panic. They took to flight, trembling, took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east winds, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, goodness gracious, what a privilege to be with you all and to bring God's word to you. Um, I should say that Blake invited me to give a brief introduction. It's, it's not so comfortable to be preached to by a complete stranger, and many of your faces I know, and I know some of you fairly well, but most of you I don't. So let me tell you some things about me before we begin the sermon itself. I am a late-in-life preacher, and you're thinking, yeah, it's obvious, you're an old guy. No, by that I will explain in my story. Let me tell you my story. I'm a lifelong Houstonian, so here's some key Threshold dates, and I'll give you a little bit of explanation. Methodist Hospital, 1956. Memorial High School, 1974. University of Texas, 1978. University of Texas Law School, 1981. Downtown Houston, for a long time as a lawyer. And then I went to seminary, late in life. Now, the highlights of my life, I've not even given you. The highlights of my life are my family and my friends. My wife, Susan, three adult children now. I'm glad they're adults. Uh, and seven grandbabies, as I recall. But the thing that I want you to know is that I tell you that story because if it actually is important for you to know that I've lived the life that most of you all are living I've been to the worlds of raising children and going and working hard and the stresses and strains of life. I understand how hard, even in our affluence and even in our blessedness, life is. I understand the disappointments. I've buried my family. I walk through my family right now with cancer. And I know the lives that you live because I've lived them. And I suppose if I had to tell you one thing about that life, I think it's a life that cannot be lived 
and must not be lived without the fullness of God's word nourishing your soul, guiding your heart, but not just God's word. And that's part of why I like this particular text. Nourished by God himself in his fullness. There's no other way to be a Houstonian. There is no other way to be a dad and a mom or a Kincaid student or a any kind of student. There is no way. So with that, by way of some degree of unnecessary introduction, but I liked it, um, let's begin this sermon on Psalm number 48. And I'm going to do my best to stay within the constraints of time, and I'll do my best. Psalm 48 that we just read is about Zion. And Zion is a symbol of enormous biblical significance, though for most of us, frankly, it's somewhat elusive and confusing. Does it have to do with Zionism? Does it have to do with a state park in Utah? How about an NBA player in New Orleans? We know it's not that. We know it's, there's, there's, there's a Jewishness to it, and we suspect there's a Christian piece of this. And so it is. I, don't be ashamed if Zion, the word, is a little bit elusive for you. It's elusive for all of us. But I would submit to you in all of God's word, the best place to understand the symbol and the reality of Zion is probably the place to start is Psalm 48. So that's where we are today. Now, I'll get to the text. I preach the text, but here's some background that may be helpful for you. The biblical origins of Zion as a symbol and as a reality burst onto the scene within that stage of redemptive history that we generally associate with David and Solomon in the Old Testament. And to be sure, and this is kind of fun to say it like this in this setting, Zion never leaves center stage as a symbol or a reality, notwithstanding 587 B.C. and 70 A.D., the notable dates of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the, two, and the temples that were located there. Notwithstanding that, it has remained and is on center stage. That it, that it is so, that it grows even in its prominence, given this history, makes it quite contemporary and still in front of us, so to speak. It's a glorious place to both reflect upon now and to look forward to and reach in the days ahead. But, Zion, but, but the question really is, is Zion at center stage for you? The scripture actually signals that it's so. Let's explore why. The psalmist of the, of the Old Testament, having been led by the Spirit to write and sing of the first unfolding of Zion, highlighted as foremost concerning Zion that Yahweh dwell there. Psalm 48 is one of the greatest of the Zion hymns in the book of Psalms, and we will discover that the rest of God's word does not leave us to ponder Zion as a mere reality of ancient Israel, but ultimately propels us, and I hope this sermon does as well, to focus on the lasting, present, and eternal city of the living God, the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, itself one day to be the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, extending God's kingdom over all in the new creation. 
So I imagine Psalm 48 in my hopefully sanctified imagination, I suppose, is something of a spiritual alma mater, an anthem concerning the city about which we shall call home, but even more so an anthem to and about our great God. I like anthems. I could sing the Memorial High School alma mater, and of course, the University of Texas. I'm sure you could do. Anthems are good. Anthems connect us to the places that we most hold tightly to as we walk through the earth. But I think the Psalms are anthems that we can sing. And this is a great anthem. I like thinking about it like that. It's not so foreign to us. It's an anthem that they sang in ancient Israel about Zion, and it's an anthem that we actually can sing even today. So, um, let's begin. Now, I'm going to consider the text this morning using three headings, and this that's, that's very Presbyterian of me. I bet Blake does some three-heading sermons too. Or maybe he's hipper than that. But anyway, the three, the three headings will be the forever city of the great king, the forever city of the great king. Secondly, a permanent fortress, a permanent fortress. And lastly, a temporary, with quotes around temporary, a temporary temple. So the forever city of the great God, the great king. Location, location, location. That phrase, likely familiar to most of us, and I know to Neil Wade, is said to be rightly attributed to a Brit named Harold Samuel regarding real estate. That is, location is a paramount concern and the most essential attribute of any piece of real estate. Location matters above all else, and it dwarfs all other considerations. Embedded in our psalm, is a similar notion of what constitutes the most essential attribute of the city. Here in Psalms 48, the embedded emphasis is rightly understood as Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Though this psalm is necessarily about Zion, it's principally about Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. For where he dwells, there is fullness of glorious life and righteousness, the fullness of all that is our longing and our inheritance is there. And so we find a deeply pivotal point at the outset of the psalm. It speaks intensively of a particular city in service of its preeminent focus upon a particular person, that is, Yahweh. So how then are we to understand the fundamental connections between this earthly city, Zion, and this person, Yahweh? Another psalm actually provides us with an initial biblical answer in short form, and that's Psalm 132. Let me read a portion of it. This is verses 13 through 18 of Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. They will make a horn to sprout for David. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And now a more detailed answer than Psalm 132 gives is actually expressed through the entire scriptural account that runs from Exodus 19 all the way to 2 Samuel 7. 
from the account of Moses at Mount Sinai to the construction of the ark and the tabernacle, and ultimately many years later to David's bringing the ark to Jerusalem. That's well before Solomon's temple's even built. Ultimately then, Zion is a city that has to do with not only Yahweh and the ark of the covenant, but with his covenant with David, and thus a covenant regarding David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And again, earlier in Psalm 132 than I read to you, it says this, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So, by way of very extended backdrop, we'll finally get into the text of Psalm 48. Now, your publisher, I suspect most, most if you have your Bible or you have your phone that has your Bible on it, uh, the publisher has provided a title for this psalm, and he, the title it typically is, Zion, the City of Our God. And that's, that's a pretty good title, but there's so much more to be had there. So let's look again at verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. We see that the psalmist's immediate connections between Yahweh, Mount Zion, and a city are all here. There's a specific location identified, a specific mountain, and thereon a city. And notice that it is called holy, beautiful, and joyful. What would or could actually make it so? Holy, beautiful, and joyful. Well, it was the earthly location which the scripture declares was Yahweh's designated earthly dwelling place with his covenant people. A dwelling in which the place of the Ark of the Covenant was stationed and ultimately resting in the Holy of Holies in the first temple, that is the ark. So there, on Mount Zion, the city of Yahweh, where he dwelt with his people and where those his people greatly praised him. The psalmist provides even deeper descriptions of Zion, deeply encouraging descriptions if we'll listen to them. Biblical scholars see in this psalm and a few others what they call the Zion tradition, which is a sort of a scholarly term or an academic term, but it's a useful term, the Zion tradition. And a scholar named Lois Fuller Dow has written a study that is entitled, interestingly, Image of Zion, Biblical Antecedents for the New Jerusalem. But I'm going to read a quote to you because there's so much material that I can get before you that she weaves together so nicely. She says, The Psalms are the main source for ideas that are usually known as the Zion theology or Zion tradition. This tradition includes the notions that Yahweh dwells in Zion, he rules the worlds from there, his presence defends the city, and that Zion has a central role in the cosmos as the place where there is a special link between heaven and earth. From Zion as a sacred or cosmic mountain and to, the, and, and to it the whole earth comes in submissive privilege and pilgrimage. Although this picture is often the one used in the prophets for the glorious Jerusalem of the future, it's also 
a view of Zion's current status in many of the Psalms. So the, the, the snapshot, if you will, that we receive from ancient Israel is that snapshot that describes Zion just in that fashion. So we see in these first two verses several of these notions. A holy mountain, the city of our God, the city of the great king, and implicitly his dwelling place, and for now implicitly the dwelling place of others, for it is, after all, a city. More details will follow in the subsequent verses. So let's, let's look at verses 3 through 8 under the second title, a permanent fortress. Within her citadels of God, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress, for behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight, trembling took hold of them. Their anguish as of a woman in labor, by the east wind you shatter the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. The unmistakable sense of security afforded by and within Zion is declared in song. Interesting, interestingly, in verse 3, it's not the citadels, that is, it is not the core fortified areas of the city that constitute the ultimate fortress of Zion. It's rather God himself. He is the fortress. That's not surprising to us, for in the earlier and familiar Psalm 46, we we hear sung that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Indeed, that's the great hymn of Martin Luther based on that psalm. It's rightly titled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And take notice this of an unmistakable additional sense that Zion prevails over all opposition in all nations. Whenever opposing kings and nations are able to see Zion as it truly is, as the dwelling place and city of our great king, they're astounded. They tremble in anguish. But note the qualifier in my last sentence. When they are able to see Zion as it truly is. The psalmist's reference here surely works both in a retrospective way, that is looking backward to past victories by the Lord, and in a prophetic way, looking forward to coming and ultimate victory. Pastor Richard Phillips rightly reminds us that the, there's a rapid succession of verbs in verses 4 and 5. They saw, they were astounded, they panicked, and they fled. It seems that all men, whether kings or paupers, when confronted by the glorious reality of God, are driven to either panic and attempted flight or to rightful worship. But of course we know that those divergent paths, flight from God, an embrace of God, or more particularly embraced by God, will one day come to an end. Those paths will not diverge in God's timing. For there will come a day when all shall see, and we know from God's word in Philippians 2, that at the knee of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those paths will not always be divergent. They will one day be joined. And the words and the knee bending will be uniform. And it's then also no surprise that the psalm speaks not only of God as a fortress, but as a forever fortress, a permanent fortress. Verse 8 describes the city of our God, which God will establish forever. 
And though we are introduced in Scripture to a beginning for Zion as the city of God, we find a remarkable and comforting assurance of its foreverness. And accordingly, we instinctively grasp at the foreverness of our triune God and an unendingness then of his providence and holiness and his love. But do not miss here the foreverness of Zion, a foreverness that Psalm 48 declares, but a foreverness that honestly we might be tempted to question given the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. and the exile thereafter to Babylon, and again in 70 A.D., after Christ has walked the earth and risen and ascended on high, Zion is again destroyed, the temple destroyed. And to that very matter of what's happened in history and redemptive history, we will return in a minute. So our third and final topic or heading, a temporary temple. Look at verses 9 and 11 of Psalm 48. There's a move there. It's, it's, it's a sweet move. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So there is on Zion a temple, a temple in the city of the great king, according to verse 9. And we, of course, recall that the Ark of the Covenant, originally housed in the tabernacle, was brought to Jerusalem by King David and was eventually located there inside Solomon's temple. The history of the temple itself within the city of Zion is important and extensive, too extensive to make but a hurried and abbreviated review this morning. But it's necessary. It's a necessary review as we reflect upon Psalm 48. For if the claims of this psalm regarding Zion are merely of historical interest regarding ancient Israel, and for many people that have preached this psalm in other churches, not yours, not in our denominations, but in other churches, that's all that Psalm 48 is to them, a matter of historical interest about ancient Israel. But if the claims of this psalm are, are limited to that, we need to acknowledge it so. But if it's otherwise, as I have already asserted, we need to understand how that could be given the multiple destructions of the temple that came centuries after the psalm was composed and given what Jesus later taught concerning himself and the temple. But before that historical and theological explanation, let's not miss what animates the psalm, psalmist in verse 9, the steadfast love of God. It's the steadfast love which occupies the thoughts of those in the midst of the temple on Zion. Does that surprise you? Now, frankly, from my distant vantage point, it sort of surprises me. I'm thinking what should occupy their thoughts is the regimented rituals that they have to go to by way of sacrifice and movement into and out of certain places. I'm imagining that the that the rhythms of, of, of the worship would, what, would be what occupied their thoughts, and sometimes the burdens of Old Testament worship would occupy their thoughts, but not so according to the psalmist. It is the steadfast love of God. Now notice what follows from the thoughts of God's steadfast love. What follows when you have those as your thoughts? Praise, gladness, and rejoicing. 
it seems that the psalmist, and this is my point, it seems that the psalmist cannot imagine a more wonderful place to be than in the midst of the temple in Zion and the prevailing of God's steadfast love which produces gladness. That's the place to be. And I'll check my watch here and see, okay, I'll do this. Where's your special place to be? Is it in front of a, you're too young for this, but some of you maybe. Is it in your chair with a channel changer going from one sport event to the next? Oh, the Astros, it's a half inning. I'll jump over and watch the golf tournament, and then I'll jump over and do something else. Is that your happy place? Or is it with your buddies on a hunt for birds or deer and just a delightful place? Or might it be even fishing somewhere? Or could it be with your girlfriends, your beloved girlfriends, serving somewhere or knitting something or crocheting something? I mean, those are all wonderful places to be, actually. Maybe not so much the channel changer, but it's the one I'm most familiar with. But the most wonderful place to be is in the temple. It's in a place where God dwells and where you can worship him according to what he says should be done in worship. And it's a gladness to our soul. So it is, I assume, and I have every reason to assume, that that's really why you all are here so faithfully at Cornerstone. Because you're glad to be here. And the steadfast love of God is proclaimed faithfully. And the fullness of the counsel of God is proclaimed faithfully. And it causes you to know of God's steadfast love and to be joyful and to, and to be glad. Not to mention my initial point, which was to be nourished so how it is that you can walk faithfully in a fallen world doing all the things you're called to do. Okay, back to my script. Ultimately, the psalmist's explosion of delight concerning Zion concludes with an exhortation to tour Zion. And I would say we're going to go on that tour, a literal and metaphorical touring, a visit to reflect upon this city and the great God who dwells there. So let's look at Psalm 48, verses 12 through 14. The psalmist says, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us. The psalmist invites us to tour Zion in these verses, an invitation with a decided goal in mind, actually. The decided goal in mind is so that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. We're going to go on that tour right now. But we have now on that tour the benefit of a great deal of world history and redemptive history since the time the psalm was written. And we also have the New Testament's further spectacular revelation regarding Christ's life and ministry and regarding the heavenly Zion. This tour takes us to and through the life and ministry of Jesus and all the way to and through the book of Revelation. So as regards history, to compress this and make this work, again, I'll refer to theologian Lois Dow's summary. She says, God's choice of Zion was closely linked to his choice of David 
as Israel's king and his promise to give David a perpetual dynasty. While David and Solomon obeyed God, Jerusalem prospered and expanded. But after Solomon started to worship other gods, the kingdom was divided. Although in God's grace, David's line continued to reign in Jerusalem for many generations, Jerusalem suffered the indignities of defeat, damage, and paying tribute to foreigners, which the biblical accounts attribute to the sins of the nation and of the kings. Finally, the sins of Manasseh and the nation as a whole led to God abandoning the city and allowing it and the temple to be destroyed and the people carried into exile. Later, the temple is rebuilt and then also the city. Now, in the Gospels, the earthly city of Jerusalem forfeits its link with the glorious eschatological city of the prophets by its rejection of Jesus. The New Testament reveals that the Old Testament prophecies of the restoration of Zion and the temple are applied to the resurrection of Jesus, the formation of the church, and the heavenly hope of believers in Jesus. Earthly Jerusalem is no longer necessary for worship. Instead, earthly Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Luke 19, look it up. And it was in 70 AD. Zion theology is applied to Jesus and to the church and to the glorious, its glorious eschatological future. Now that is about three seminary courses and a couple of uh, seminars put together, okay? But y'all are bright and you, you know these things and I'm just weaving them together and reminding you of these things. I think Professor Greg Beal, a trusted professor up in Philadelphia, well he ended, he was in, he was in uh, at Wheaton and he went to Philadelphia and now I think he's retired and, and goes to PCPC in Dallas because his family lives there. At any rate, in his writings he said this, Christ is the temple toward which all earlier temples looked and which they anticipated. Christ is the epitome of God's presence on earth as God incarnate, thus continuing the true form of the old temple, which actually was a foreshadowing of Christ's presence throughout the Old Testament era. Jesus' repeated claim that forgiveness now comes through him and no longer through the sacrificial system of the temple, suggests strongly that he was taking over the function of the temple. And in fact, the forgiveness he now offered was what the temple had imperfect, imperfectly pointed to all along. Now, I'm not sure I'd go so far as imperfectly. I would say incompletely, effectively, because those Old Testament saints belong to, 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 to Christ, but it was, it, the imperfection is clear, the burden is clear. There is a new covenant. Moreover, notwithstanding the subsequent history of Israel's unfaithfulness just summarized, and notwithstanding Jesus' taking over the role of the temple, Zion, the great city of, uh, of, of the great king, never leaves center stage in God's unfolding of redemptive history. Zion does, in fact, continue to play a glorious role, a role probably most thoroughly highlighted in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. Indeed, in Hebrews, as in Psalm 48, we find that Zion is indeed God's dwelling place, and he is there with his people and will be with his people forever and ever. And I'm looking at his people if you belong to Jesus. So this is what Hebrews 12 says. It's a magnificent, magnificent chapter. But he says this, he says this to Jewish 
Christians, people that belong to Jesus, many of whom are tempted to backslide and give up on Jesus and go back to the rhythms of, the, of, of a Judaism that of, of that day, of, of an ancient Israeli, Israelite religion. He says to them, and I think he says to us, I know he says to us, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews is speaking here of heaven as it is now, and as it will be until it descends as the new Jerusalem as detailed in Revelation 21. Now, let me just say, I, I think this is glorious, what is said in Hebrews 12. And interestingly, it's glorious in the same way that the psalmist speaks of Zion in, in, in Psalm 48. For we see in Hebrews and, and in the psalm, it's a city of praise and joy. For Hebrews speaks of innumerable angels in festal gathering. They don't have channel changers. They don't have guns. They don't have crochet needles. Well, they could if they, I suppose they could do all that. But they are in festal gathering. Extraordinary, explosive delight. And it's a city, of, people are dwelling there. For Hebrews speaks of the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And Hebrews says it's the city of the living God who dwells there. For Hebrews speaks of God, the judge of all, and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And it's a city, this is this heavenly Jerusalem, it's a city with a temple in its midst, for Hebrews speaks of sprinkled blood. What a dwelling place. What a city. What congruence Psalm 48 is with this heavenly Zion, this heavenly Jerusalem. Joy, security, love, and worship. A covenant God with his covenant people forever. But pastor, before you stop, why did you speak earlier of a temporary temple in Zion? For the heavenly Jerusalem, about which you just mentioned in Hebrews, has a heavenly sanctuary, and it speaks of sprinkled blood. Indeed, the high priestly ministry of Jesus in the heavenly temple of the heavenly Zion is carefully developed in Hebrews. Remember what it declares. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent of true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but to heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So again, why then speak of a temporary temple if there is a heavenly sanctuary in the heavenly Jerusalem? Why? And the all-too-abbreviated answer, the all-too-abbreviated answer is this. Because Scripture reveals in Revelation 21 that when the heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of heaven at the end of this age as the new Jerusalem, it will have no temple. That's good news. This from Revelation 21. He, it says, John says, And I saw no temple in the city... For the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So, Professor Greg Beale helps us again in saying this. He says, this is, I may read this twice because it's so good. The new creation and new Jerusalem are none other than the true temple of God's special presence because the temple, which equals God's presence, encompasses the whole earth. The cultic divine presence that was formerly limited to Israel's temple and then to the church will fill the whole earth. Heaven and earth, it will become coextensive with it. And now we can see even more clearly that Psalm 48, which points us to Zion, is ultimately and wisely and rightly pointing us to the Lord. For the psalm's telling conclusion is itself gloriously prescient and gloriously true. This is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Oh, friends, I hope that, that, that you with children have don't think this is above their, above their reach. It's not above their reach. The foreverness of God and the foreverness of Zion the magnificence of that should be taught to them. I think that's what the psalmist wants us to do. He wants to tell the next generation, this is our God, our forever God. And therein, it is so because of Christ. So, this has been the word of the Lord. May it summon you to the city of the living God. But know this, that the only way there the only way there is to be joined to Christ, whose steadfast love and matchless work of redemption never fails those who by repentance and faith come to him. Let's pray. Father, I do, I do beseech you to take that which your spirit, I pray, has propelled forth into the hearts and minds of your people to nourish them, to, to encourage them, to point them, to convict them, to strengthen them, to edify them. May it be so that, that that has gone forth through your preached word to your people and to those who don't know Christ, who need to respond in faith. I pray that the magnificence of your comprehensive provision for your people, the security and joy and provision that comes from being belonging to Jesus would be, would be made more ever more evident to them. Draw those who don't know the Lord Jesus to him and may your spirit go forth to accomplish that work now and forevermore we ask this in Christ's name amen